like Mike. If I could be like Mike. I don't know if you remember that campaign by Gatorade, late 80s, early 90s, when Michael Jordan was on top of the basketball world. And the catchy song just basically said, Michael Jordan, is, he's so awesome, he's so great, I want to be like him. Well, I want to ask you this question. Who do you emulate? Who do you imitate? Who do you want to be like? Well, we're going to see a man in Scripture this morning that Paul thanks God for, that Paul celebrates. And I think as we look at this man's life, we'll see some things that are worthy of our emulation. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I want to introduce you to a man named Epaphras. Not as catchy as Mike, but a better song to sing might be like Epaphras. If I could be like Epaphras. All right, Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 3. We're going to focus specifically on verses 7 and 8. If you remember last week, uh, we began a sermon titled Celebrate, and we only got through two of the three points. So this is Celebrate Part 2, and we're going to spend our entire sermon looking at point number 3. So if you're physically able this morning, please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, holy, living, breathing word. Colossians chapter 1, the Bible says, in verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, look with me at verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we pause to declare once again how great you are. We have 10,000 reasons to bless your name and so many more. And we just want to honor you today and praise you and exalt you. You are the reason that we're here. Lord, you are the center of attention. It's, it's all about you. And Lord, as we turn our mind's attention and heart's affection to you, I pray that we would encounter you in a powerful way. I pray that we would leave today knowing we have met with God. And we say to you, speak, for your servants are listening. Lord, I ask you to establish my steps today in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we began our journey through the book of Colossians, line by line, verse by verse, we saw that this book we call Colossians is in reality a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century, somewhere around 61 to 62 A.D. He was writing from a prison cell in Rome during his first Roman imprisonment, 
And he was writing to a group of Christians in the Lycus River Valley, a, a smaller city by the name of Colossae. Now, as we look at how this letter lines up with other letters that Paul wrote and the timeline in the book of Acts, we see that here's probably what happened. During Paul's two-year stay in Ephesus, the Bible says in Acts 19 that the gospel was heard throughout all of Asia. So during that time, probably is when a man named Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul, and he went back to his hometown, to the Lycus River Valley, where he had Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea, and he preached the gospel, and churches were started in that area. Well, as Paul was in prison at Rome, Epaphras made his way back to that area, made his way to Rome to report to Paul about the, the status of the Colossian church. And based upon what he heard from Epaphras, Paul is writing this letter to commend some things that he heard and to address some concerns that he had. Now, he begins this letter with a brief but profound word of greeting. And, and he's going to pray for them in verses 9 through 12 and pray some very specific things for them. But before he gets to the prayer requests, he lists some things that he is thankful for. He's, he's celebrating what God is doing. We saw last week that Paul celebrated the work of God in others. We talked at length about looking around and seeing the fingerprints of God in other people's lives. And we saw last week that Paul celebrated the power and impact of the gospel, that good news message about Jesus and how it had changed so many lives. But third, I want you to see that Paul celebrated faithful servants. Paul was grateful for faithful servants. And what happens here in chapter 1 is Paul turns from talking about the message, the gospel, to the messenger, Epaphras. Look what he says there in verse 6. Speaking of the gospel, he says, you, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from who? Epaphras. Epaphras was the messenger of the gospel. And so I want you to see three things about Epaphras that Paul lists here that are things we ought to be thankful for, things we ought to celebrate, and things we ought to strive for in our lives. We ought to want to be like Epaphras. And I want to show you this description that we see in the text. First of all, Epaphras was a slave of Jesus Christ. Epaphras was a slave of Jesus Christ. Look what he says there in verse 7. He says, you heard it, you learned it from Epaphras. Look at this description. Our beloved fellow bondservant. Doulos, slave. That's what Paul says there. Now, Paul often, through his letters, described himself as a doulos. But by him calling Epaphras a fellow doulos, a fellow slave, he is, he is recognizing how faithful Epaphras' life was. A fellow slave of Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase, a fellow bondservant, speaks of rights. Rights. You see, when you're a slave, you have no rights. And when you're a slave of Jesus Christ, that means that Jesus Christ is calling the shots. He's Lord. He's master. He's boss. What he says goes. It's his will. It's his way. It's about him. And when you're a bondservant, a slave of Jesus, that means that he has, has total control of your life. Now, as we think about this metaphor of being a slave of Jesus or a bondservant of Jesus, it, it's hard for us to wrap our minds and hearts around because 
when we think of slavery, we think of the evil, wicked institution of slavery. And make no mistake about it, the institution of slavery is evil and wicked. It has destroyed countless lives and generations for centuries in our world. And by the way, there are still remnants of slavery going on today. And it is an awful, awful, wicked, heinous thing. So when we see that he's a slave of Jesus Christ, we have a problem kind of relating to that because we think of how wicked the institution of slavery is. But I want you to see this morning that there are some definite, important distinctions between slavery to Jesus Christ and the evil institution of slavery. Let me share those distinctions with you. There are at least three. First of all, the institution of slavery was forced. Slavery to Jesus Christ is voluntary. The institution of slavery was forced. I mean, people were taken against their will and forced to, to work and to serve in harsh conditions. They were forced into that lifestyle. But slavery to Jesus Christ, surrendering your rights to the lordship of Jesus, is never forced. Christ will not make you surrender. Christ will not force you into service. Christ will not force you to lay down your rights. It's, it's got to be voluntary if you're a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You've got to make the decision. Will I surrender all? There's a, there's a beautiful picture of this found in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy and Exodus, we see that God gave some important instructions to the Hebrew people. The Hebrews, during the time of Moses, had slaves. And the most important or the most uh, common reason for that slavery was debt. Someone had a debt that they owed someone, they could not pay the debt, so they would actually give their lives to that person to work it off. That was the most common reason for, for bond service or slavery in that day and time. But God in his graciousness set some limits. And God said, every seventh year, the slaves are to be set free. Even if they owe more money, even if they've not worked off their debt, you are to set them free from their service. Set them free from their slavery. But the Lord said something very important in that command. He said in Exodus chapter 21, verse 5, But if the slave plainly says, Listen, I love my master, my wife and my children. I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door uh, or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, a small piece of wood, and he shall serve him permanently. And so the Lord's saying that every seventh year you need to set your slaves free, but there may be some that love their master so much they want to voluntarily continue in that role. And if that's the case, you put their ear against the doorpost, you pierce it with a piece of wood, and that pierced ear will be an indicator to the household and to everyone that knows them that this person has chosen to be a bondservant. This person has voluntarily laid down his freedom and his rights to serve this family. Can you imagine the power of that ceremony? The power of that symbol of a, a pierced ear speaking of voluntarily surrendering to slavery. Well, that's a picture of what it means to be a slave of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus does not force us into service. We've got to make the decision. I love Jesus. He is all the world to me. And, and based upon my love for him, I am voluntarily laying down my rights, my will, and my way, and I'm giving all that I have to him. That's what slavery to Jesus Christ looked like. It's, it's voluntary. But let me give you a second distinction. The institution of slavery was comprised of evil masters. A slave of Jesus Christ has a wonderful master. You've heard the horrible stories about how evil these slave masters were throughout the centuries of that evil institution. Terrible, terrible stories of abuse and harsh treatment. But I want you to know, when you're a bond servant of Jesus, you have a loving, wonderful master. Like the old, old song says, no one ever cared for you like Jesus, right? No one loves you as much as Jesus loves you. No one wants what's best for your life more than Jesus Christ. So when you surrender to him as Lord, he's going to, to watch over you and do what's best for you and bless you and help you because he's a wonderful, gracious master. And that's an important distinction that we see. And then third, the institution of slavery was about bondage. Your life was taken away from you. Slavery to Jesus Christ is about freedom. It's about freedom. When you surrender all to Jesus, listen to me, that's where you find life. Jesus said, he who tries to save his life will lose it, but he who lays down his life for my sake will find it. In other words, through surrender, you really find life. Jesus is not trying to take away your life. He's trying to give you real fulfillment and real meaning and real purpose and real impact. But you've got to surrender all to him. It's interesting to note that there are people out there that want nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with church. They don't want anything at all to do with that because they think that if they start to follow Jesus, Jesus is going to take away all their fun. And they think, you know what, I'm free. I, I, I'm, the, I'm the captain of my soul. I'm doing what I want to do. I'm living the life I want to live. I am free. But in reality, a person like that is in deep bondage. Bondage to sin, bondage to self, bondage to Satan. It's only when you surrender to Jesus that you really are set free. It's a big difference, isn't it, between the institution of slavery, which is all about bondage, and slavery to Jesus Christ, which is all about freedom. When you surrender all to Jesus, he sets you free to serve, to love, to make a difference with your life. So Paul calls Epaphras a, a bondservant, a fellow bondservant, a fellow slave of Jesus Christ. You know, surrendering to the Lordship of Christ is about recognizing His authority over your life. There's a family in our church, they recently sent their son off to join the armed forces. He joined the Navy, and they were telling me about him going to basic training. And when you go into basic training, you, you don't take your cell phone with you. you got to surrender your cell phone. Now, for some of you, that would cancel out the armed forces right there. You're not willing to part with your cell phone for anybody or anything. 
But you know what it's all about? It's about recognizing that you are completely under authority. When you, when you make that decision, sign on the line and enter basic, you have no rights. You are completely under authority. And that's what it means to be a slave of Jesus Christ. You recognize his authority. He is the creator of the universe. He is the Lord of all. He is the one that sits on his throne. He has all authority. So you lay down all your puny, selfish rights and say, I want what Jesus wants for my life. So here's the application question. Have you surrendered all to the lordship of Christ? Is every area of your life under the authority of Jesus? Or does he just have your Sunday mornings? Have you surrendered all to Jesus Christ? If you haven't, then you can't call yourself a bondservant of Jesus. But Paul here says he's a fellow slave, a fellow bondservant of Jesus. There's another thing about Epaphras that I think we should imitate and emulate. Not only was he a slave of Jesus Christ, he was faithful. Look what Paul writes in verse 7. He says, you heard the grace of God in truth as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ. A faithful servant of Christ. This phrase speaks of respect. The Apostle Paul is calling him faithful. That's pretty awesome, right? I mean, when Paul calls you faithful, that means something. Because Paul knew what it was like to be faithful no matter what life brought his direction. And he calls Epaphras a faithful servant. Now, the word servant there is different than the word bondservant used earlier in the verse. The word bondservant is doulos or soon doulos, which is the idea of slave or bondservant. The word servant there. Later on, when he says he's a faithful servant, is the word diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon from. And the word diakonos is used in the New Testament to refer to the office of deacon, but it's also used to just speak of general service to Christ. That's what he's saying here. He's a faithful servant of Christ. To, to kind of differentiate it from the idea of bondservant or doulos, we might translate it like this. He says, you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. He was one that had a role in the body of Christ, and he faithfully discharged that role. Now, now here's what I want you to glean from this about Epaphras. Every Christian is a minister. I didn't say every Christian is a staff member. I said every Christian is a minister. You have a role in the body of Christ. And what's happened in, in the church is we have come to this place where we have a hired gun mentality. We're going to hire folks to do all the work, and we're going to sit back and cheer them on. That's not a New Testament picture. The New Testament says in 1 Corinthians 12 that everybody has a part, a role in the body of Christ. And if those parts that are deemed insignificant are not doing their role, they're hurting the entire body. So your role in the body of Christ, whatever it is, is just as important as my role in the body of Christ. Do you believe that? Three of you believe that. That's good. But he says here, he's faithful. Every Christian is a minister, but not every Christian is a faithful minister. You have a role. The question is, are you discharging that role? Are you 
actively serving Jesus. A while back, I had the occasion to officiate a funeral service with another pastor. This other pastor was an older, retired pastor, still preaching at a, another church. And he preached the service, and I had some scripture reading and prayer. And after the service, we got into the same vehicle. We got in his vehicle to drive to the cemetery. And it was a little bit of a drive, and so we had some time there to converse, maybe about 20 minutes uh, during that funeral procession. And uh, this gentleman had preached faithfully for decades. He'd retired, but he was still preaching at a church that needed a pastor. And he has no TV ministry. He's written no books that I'm aware of. He just faithfully served Jesus year after year after year after year after year. And after the, the service, I, I got in the car with some of our staff that went down to the service with me. And, and I just told them how much of an impact it made for me to spend just a few minutes with that faithful, older pastor. He's the type that when he gets to heaven, he'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I thought, I want to be like that decades from now. And the question is, do you want to be like that? Well done, good faithful servant the apostle paul looks at epaphras and says he's a he's a faithful diakonos a faithful minister a faithful servant in the body of christ here's the application question does the term faithful describe your service to the lord everybody in here has an adjective before their their service to the lord is the adjective before your service to the lord faithfulness there's a third thing that Paul says about Epaphras. He says that he's a slave of Jesus Christ. He points out that Epaphras is faithful. But third, he mentions that Epaphras is an extension of Paul's ministry. And this is very important. I want to camp out here for a few moments and really kind of dig in because there's so much here that you and I need to hear. Epaphras was an extension of Paul's ministry. This phrase speaks of reproduction. Reproduction. Epaphras had carried on the ministry of Paul by taking the gospel to a new area. Look what the Bible says there in verse 7. You learned it. You learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. On our behalf. Now, you need to understand there's some translation challenges with this, with this phrase because it's just one word in the Greek. And there are two different ways that people translate this phrase on our behalf. The ESV and the KJV and the HCSB, like all those, all those abbreviations, they translate this phrase on your behalf. Epaphras is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf. He's, he's serving you. The NASB, which I'm preaching out of, and the RSV and the NIV use the phrase on our behalf. He's come as... My representative, he's serving you on my behalf. He's carrying the gospel on my behalf. Now, the difference in the Greek between the two is one letter. The phrase on your behalf is the Greek word humon, and the phrase on your behalf is the Greek word hamon. One Greek letter changes the difference between the phrase. You say, wait, which one is it? 
Well, I believe that the oldest manuscripts, the best manuscripts that we have, which are copies of the original, use the phrase Hamon on our behalf. And so I believe the NASB has it right here. And it, and it carries with it the general idea of what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, I could not be in Colossae. I was not the one that started that church. Epaphras came as he was changed by the gospel, and he preached the gospel, and he started that church. He was my representative, an extension of my ministry. He was there in Colossae on my behalf. That's, believe, what Paul is saying. I like what D.E. Garland writes. He writes, Paul did not believe that as an apostle he was the only one qualified to preach the gospel. He was commissioned by God to preach to the Gentiles, but, listen, he could not be everywhere. He rapidly equipped his converts to spread the gospel in places where he could not go himself. Apparently, Epaphras represented Paul in his home territory and may have founded all three churches in the Lycus River Valley, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Now turn to Colossians 4 with me very quickly. I want to show you this. Verse 12, Paul mentions Epaphras again. Paul really liked Epaphras. Look what it says in Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. There's that phrase again. Sends you his greetings. Remember, Epaphras had left Colossae, come to Rome where Paul was to report to him about the state of the church in Colossae. He sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Look at verse 13. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now the three cities in the Lycus River Valley were Laodicea, Hierapolis, Colossae. Apparently, as he preached the gospel, churches were started in all three cities. We know there was a church in Laodicea because Jesus addresses that church in Revelation chapter 3. Remember Laodicea? The church that was neither hot nor cold, it was lukewarm. Jesus said, I want to spew you out of my mouth. There was a church started there. And, and probably all of these churches can be traced back to, to Epaphras, the faithful church planter, that showed up in his hometown, showed up in his home area, and said, I want to tell you about Jesus. People heard. They were saved. Churches were started. And so Epaphras was an extension of Paul's ministry. Paul was able to reproduce himself through Epaphras so the gospel would continue to go forth. And listen to me, if you look on your notes, reproduction is the goal of discipleship. Now one of the reasons I chose to preach from Colossians, this, this new school year, as we get back into the swing of things around here at the church, is because I really wanted to go deep with you in terms of thinking about discipleship, to really emphasize who we are as a church and what we're about, what our goal is. And this phrase, Epaphras, a faithful minister, on our behalf, speaks of discipleship. Reproduction is the goal of discipleship. Now turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to show you this even more clearly. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Don't lose me here. This is important. Paul's writing to his young protege, Timothy, pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he writes, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now look in verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now that one verse, 2 Timothy 2.2, there are four generations of people mentioned. Do you see it? 
First is Paul. Look what he says. The things you've heard from me. So Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was saved. He was transformed by the gospel. And he had this work of God in his life. And he said, you heard, Timothy, these things from me. That's generation number one. The second generation is Timothy. Look what he says. The things which you have heard. So Paul took what he had learned about Jesus, took the gospel message, and passed it on to who? Timothy. Who did he pass it on to? Okay, you with me? That's generation number two. Where's generation number three? Well, look what he says. The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men. So, Timothy, you take what you've learned, that you learned from me, and you pass it on to another generation. That's generation number three. But there's even a fourth generation here. Look what he says. Things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men, here it is, who will be able to teach others also. So you pass it on to others, Timothy, and teach them so they can pass it on to others. And teach them so they can pass it on to others. You see what's happening here? Generations of people being affected by the gospel. Now maybe this will get your attention. This explains why we're losing our nation. This explains why we're losing our nation. We've not figured out in church life how to get beyond the first generation of believer. It's not happening. And as a matter of fact, we're not even really good at getting to the first generation. Because statistics show that 95% of those that named the name of Christ never shared their faith. So 95% are never getting to the next generation of Christianity. They never win someone to Christ. And then those 5% that do win someone to Christ, it stops right there. They don't teach that person that they won to Christ how they can go out and do the same thing. How they can win someone to Christ. And there's not this ongoing movement. That's why churches are dying. That's why Christianity is having very little impact. It's when we do see someone saved, we're not teaching them or training them how to make it happen again. How to be our representatives, to go with the gospel on our behalf. Very rarely do you see anyone in the church in America that has gone beyond the first generation. That seeing someone saved and then seeing that person that's saved actually go out and share the gospel themselves and lead someone else to faith in Christ. You, it's almost non-existent. But for example, let me just ask you. I don't want you to raise your hands. Do you have anyone in your life that's gone beyond the first generation? Have you led someone to Christ and then trained them and taught them so they could do the same thing? Have you seen that happen? Paul was talking about four generations. And that's what happened in Colossae. Paul won Epaphras to Christ and taught him, so he was able to go to Colossae and win others to Christ. Reproduction is the goal of discipleship. But here's what's happened in the American church. And I'm not speaking as one who has it all figured out. As a matter of fact, I've contributed to this problem. But discipleship in the church in America has become knowledge-based. Let's get together with people that we like and are comfortable with, and let's just exchange knowledge. And we'll feel good about it because we're learning the Bible, and we're learning more stuff, and so we get together in our group, and, and we learn stuff, and we have a good time together, and good fellowship, and we're comfortable, and we're happy, and then we leave, and the group never grows. 
We have our connect groups and our men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies, and it's the same group of folks every week learning more Bible, having a good time together, good fellowship, but it never goes beyond that generation of people because discipleship has become all about transfer of knowledge, not about obedience. So if we're going to get to this in the church, in our small groups, we've got to begin to hold each other accountable. Who have you shared the gospel with? Who have you shared your testimony with? Someone comes in and says, I led someone to Jesus. Okay, what are you doing to follow up with them? How are you going to train them to be able to do what you did and actually share the gospel? That's got to begin to happen. Let it happen here at Longview Point. In our one-on-one discipleship that happens, we've got a lot of folks that have one-on-one meetings throughout this church, and that's wonderful, but does it go beyond that generation? In our connect groups, you have connect groups, you like each other, you meet together, you learn the Bible, that's all good stuff, but is it going beyond that generation? Your men's discipleship class, your women's discipleship class, you meet together, you're learning God's Word together, that's wonderful. Is it going beyond that generation? Until that starts to happen, we will not impact our nation. I mean, what we're talking about is the key to changing the course, the trajectory of America. Because only the gospel can change things. But the gospel has to go forth. Let me tell you the story of a man named Ying Kai. Ying Kai had Chinese parents, but he grew up in Taiwan. His father was a faithful pastor, and he learned much from watching his father pastor a church as he grew up. Ying Kai and his wife Grace came to America to do some theological study. While he was in America, he was in Texas, going to seminary. He started a, a church for Asian people and saw some growth there, and some neat things happen. After he finished his studies, he and his wife, went to Hong Kong with a missions agency. They were placed there in Hong Kong, which is a very large city. And they began to do faithful ministry. And what happened is every year, Ying Kai and Grace would lead about 40 to 60 people to Jesus. Pretty awesome, right? And then they started church. So at at the end of three years, they had three churches. And people were celebrating, saying, that's awesome. I mean, three churches started in three years of ministry in Hong Kong. Well, they left Hong Kong for a short time to go to get away and go on a break. When they got back, they had a new leader of their missions agency in that area. And he got them together and he said, listen, you're doing a great job in Hong Kong, but, but there's, there are a lot of churches in Hong Kong now. There are some things happening in Hong Kong. So we want to put you in an area where there's very little Christian work. So they sent Ying Kai and Grace to this area of Asia, this Asian country, And they were planted in the middle of a city that had about 5.8 million people. And and people traveled to the city from all over the countryside to work in the factories. And when you factored all of those folks in that traveled in to work, there were about 20 million people in this area that needed Jesus. 20 million people. Now what would you do if someone set you down in the middle of 20 million people who are almost all lost and said, reach these people with the gospel? Where would you start? Well, Ying Kai and his wife Grace did the math. They said, if we just keep doing what we've do, always done, you know, 40, 60 people, start a church, 
we'll never even scratch the surface of the losses of this area. So they, they changed the way they did things. And they found out there was a, a small group of Christians in that area. And they arranged to meet with them and, and met with the leadership of the church. And they got about 30 folks together that wanted to hear what Yin Kai had to say. And Yin Kai began to teach them, listen, not a knowledge-based way of discipleship, but an obedience way, uh, obedience-based way of discipleship. He got them together and said, write down on a sheet of paper your friends and family, co-workers that you believe to be lost. And they began to write those down. Then he said, okay, I want you to go this week and share your testimony with them. Share Jesus with them. And at the end of the week, they came back, and about 11 of the 30 actually did it. And they said, we, we shared the gospel, and we had some folks actually saved. And so Yin Kai said, okay, I want you to go back, and I want you to begin to train those believers so they can do the same thing. Do it right now. I want you to go to them and say, write down on a sheet of paper, five to ten people in your family or your friends that are lost. Write them down, and then go this week and share your testimony with them. And they began to do that. They begin to train folks, not just share the gospel with them, but train them how to do the same thing. Yin Kai writes in his book, We started the first group of 30 people in November 2000, and after three months they were leading 27 small groups, and over 200 people had come to believe in Jesus. This moved my heart, he wrote. I bet it did. He thought, before every year, Grace and I led 40 to 60 people to Jesus. But right now, after three months, through those 30 people, we have already led 200 people to faith, 200 new believers. Now, Yin kind Grace did not do all of that, but they had people working on their behalf, their representatives, to go and preach the gospel and saw 200 people saved in three months' time. And that began a, a wonderful church planting movement in that area that is almost unparalleled in today's time. So Wade, what are you saying? I'm saying we've got to figure out how to get beyond the first generation of Christians and actually begin to train people so they can go forth with the gospel and have an impact in a lost and dying world. I don't have all the answers, but I know we've got to figure that out. 2 Timothy 2, 2, we've got to figure that out. That's the way you change the world. That's what Jesus said. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them, training them to observe all that I've commanded, even the Great Commission. So here's the application question. Are you passing on the faith to others and then teaching them how to pass on the faith? For too long, we've celebrated, okay, someone shared their faith and they were saved. Hallelujah, that's wonderful. But did it stop there? Are you passing on the faith to others and then teaching them how to pass on the faith? When we begin to answer that question in the affirmative, we will begin to see a mighty movement that you cannot even wrap your mind around. Because God works through the ongoing proclamation of the gospel. And so, Paul celebrates... He's thankful that Epaphras is a slave of Jesus Christ. He's a, a faithful servant, and he is an extension of Paul's ministry. Paul had never gone to Colossae, but there was a church there because Paul had trained someone how to go in that area and preach the good news. Do you see that? And so maybe we need to sing a new song around here. Not like Mike, if I could be like Mike, but like Epaphras. 
if I could be like Epaphras. I mean, what if we had a church full of Epaphrases? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the impact? 